We can go home now after Mark just prayed that. That's all I have to say. Uh, thank you, Mark. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for uh, being true to what uh, Mark has so prayed. Um, welcome to uh, Fort Worth Press. My name is Ryan Anderson. As Darwin has said, I'm the campus minister at RUF over at TCU. And uh, we're going to be looking this morning uh, from the book of Malachi. Uh, if you don't know where Malachi is, that's okay. It often gets passed over, but it's the last book in the Old Testament. So if you can find Matthew and go back, that would work. Or you can just look for page 801. That would be easier too. And uh, it'll be there on page 801. I just wanted to say uh, a huge thank you to this church. Uh, life and ministry over at TCU continues to be uh, exciting, and we continue to see God's hand at work there. Several of our students and their parents are here with us this morning. And it is, a, it is a joy to have partners in this gospel ministry uh, on that campus at University in Barrie. The, the campus is, uh, like all of us, it's broken and yet it's beautiful. And so it's a glorious thing to be able to partner with you all to see God and His grace really do amazing things on that campus. So I just continue to say thank you. So uh, after that passing word, uh, will you turn your eyes there to Malachi chapter 1. We're going to be reading uh, verses 1 to 11 this morning, but uh, that's mainly for context because we'll spend most of our time looking at the first five verses. So if you're able, will you read with me? If not, I ask that you would listen. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests, who despise my name? But you say, How have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, How have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will He show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, My name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Amen. This is God's Word. He has told us that every word of God proves true. He is a shield 
to those who take refuge in Him. Will you pray with me? Our Lord, thank You that You have not left us as orphans, but that You have spoken to us. You have given us Your Word. And we ask now that You would open our hearts, our eyes, and our ears that we might hear from You by Your Spirit, through Your Word. Oh Lord, we come from uh, the entire spectrum of belief and doubt this morning. Some of us knowing You for quite some time, excited to be here. And yet others of us, O oh Lord, coming in here, not sure what to make of You. In fact, uh, maybe even hoping that we don't get found out this morning. That we're not exposed as frauds and failures. Oh Lord, wherever we're at, would You show us our deep need for You? And would You show us how Christ meets our deep need? Would You do this for Your name's sake, by Your grace? It's for Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, um, as we begin this story here in Malachi, I want to share another story with you. Neil LeBute, the playwright, in his play, The Mercy Seat, tells a jarring story about the nature of love. The story opens with Ben watching his television at his girlfriend's studio apartment in New York City, just a few blocks from where the World Trade Center once stood. It is September 12th, 2001, sometime in the morning, and his cell phone is ringing incessantly. He is in shock at the fall of these behemoth buildings when Abby, his girlfriend, walks in and begins pressing him on whether or not he has made the call that he said he was going to make yesterday. You see, this call was to Ben's wife. Abby was more truly Ben's mistress who has been seeing now for many years. And at the time of the collapse, Ben was supposed to be at work in the World Trade Center. Instead, he decided to visit with Abby. And so, Ben is faced with a choice. Pick up the phone and tell his calling wife that he is okay and explain why he wasn't in the building. Or he can let it ring and a new offer is on life for him. The final scene of the play ends with Abby leaving the apartment and Ben sitting alone with his cell phone. It begins to ring and the audience is left wondering as the lights fade to black if he ever picks up the phone. And they're left wondering as well about the character of love itself. Namely, can it be trusted? Is it real? Is it all that it says it is? And I think that this is easy for us to understand in some capacity because at some time or another, I bet you, along with me, have asked these sort of questions. You see, for those of us who are convinced of the biblical God, it is easy to second-guess His love for us too. I mean, all it takes for me is to not get a parking space. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I become Job. It was better for me to die, the Lord. I'll take one look at my circumstances, see how difficult they are, and conclude that God must not love me anymore. Have you ever done that? And I don't just mean it with small things. How about the job loss? How about students? That bad grade that you received on a test yet you studied so diligently for? The relationship has fallen apart. Or it never began or it continues in 20 years of misery. 
The child is making shipwreck of their life. The best friend has abandoned you. And on and on the list goes. The point is, all of us, if we're honest, know what it's like to doubt the love of God to us when we consider the vast details of our life. And you know what? That is why I'm grateful for Malachi's word here. It is, it is why I'm so grateful that, he, that God in His grace gives us this because His contemporaries, Malachi's too, had come to seriously question God's love for them. As we'll see, they looked around at their lives and seeing that life was not giving them what they had hoped for, they began to harbor suspicion about God's love for them. But listen up, church. God loves even those who are suspicious about His love toward them. In fact, this text is going to show us how God, by His grace and for His glory, seeks to recover frail and fainting hearts. You see, when our doubt grows, our Lord is kind to not sit idle by. He is our King. And He fights even for our unbelief, even for us. So how does He do it? Malachi shows us in these particular ways. One, He's going to state His love for them in no uncertain terms. Secondly, He's going to remind them of their great story. And lastly, He is going to remind them or show them their role in that story. So can we begin first by looking at verse 2 and how God states His love for them. So where does God start with those who have grown uncertain in their confidence that He truly loves them? He tackles it head on, directly. Like any loving parent who wants to communicate their affection, love, and care to their children, God, so to speak, takes the knee, gets them in the eye, and tells them of His great love. Do you see it right there? Verse 2, I have loved you. I have loved you. He is assuring them of their great love. Now, why would He need to do such a thing? This is where we must look a little bit at the context surrounding this. You see, we know that Malachi's ministry took place about a hundred years after Cyrus the Great, the great Persian emperor, had given had come in and had given word about that the Jews could come home from the land of Babylon. You see, about 70 years prior, the Babylonians had come into Jerusalem, God's favored city, and had ransacked it and took those people into exile some 350 miles to the east. And now after about 70 years, this great Persian emperor named Cyrus has overthrown that Babylonian empire. And he now has reign and rule. And one of his edicts is to let those people who have been exiled return to their home. And so they do return. And it is precisely these people that Malachi is ministering to more appropriately, their sons and daughters. But all was not well in Judah during this time. Why? Well, God's prophets, ones like Zechariah and Jeremiah and Isaiah, had told of this exile. But they had also foretold that when the exile had ended, God's great blessings would come to them. And as they began to look around, they couldn't help but notice that things were quite to the contrary. They were a tiny vassal country, some 20 by 25 miles long. The temple had been restored, but where was God's presence? The crops were few. Most importantly, they were no longer ruled by a king from David's line. In sum, as one commentator would put it, 
It was definitely a period of life after the fireworks for Judah in this time. So, after experiencing the Lord's good discipline and not seeing the hoped-for blessing, both of those things, God knew that they needed assurance of His faithfulness to them. And what alone would comfort these doubting, even hard-hearted people, but an explicit declaration of God's love for them. Make no bones about it. To a group of worn-out men and women, the first word God speaks is one of His favor and faithfulness. I can remember when I was a child, about 10 or 11 years old, I was trading baseball cards with a neighbor. Some of you might have done this when you were growing up. And I just want to tell you, I gave him the raw end of the deal. I gypped him off, as we used to say. And all for about three bucks. Now, my dad had found out about this, as our parents often do. Can I get an amen, kids? (laughs) And because he knew that my character mattered more than the $3 that I had just sold it for, he disciplined me. And after he was done, he put his arm around me, looked me square in the face, and told me, son, I love you. I want you to know that. I want you to know that that's exactly what is going on in this text. God does not want, like my dad, did not want the final word for His people from Him to be one of ruin and despair, but of love and enjoyment. And I'm pretty sure that all of us know, that all of us know what that is like. We know that when things are going bad, we sense relational ruin. The most comforting thing that we can hear is for the person that has all the right to sever the relationship to come to us and speak and remind the offender that they are going nowhere. That they are remaining put. To look them square in the eye and to say, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Do not doubt it. What grace that is. And that is exactly why God states His love to these people. It's not only that He does that, but He does something more as well. After He has pulled them in, looked them in the face, and said, I love you, dear one. He's going to remind them of their story. Now, take a look with me at this uh, point in the text, verses 2 through 4. From the outside looking in, it looks absolutely jaw-dropping is what happens. It is in light of this, uh, this, this telling of God Uh, telling them that He loves them, that these people begin to say, did you catch it there? Well, how have you loved us? The people say. And you know what? Most commentators would say that this isn't a genuine lament. This isn't something that where there is uh, like all hope has been lost. And so, how have you loved us? With deep compassion and concern. Rather, it is one that is uttered with deep cynicism. In fact, one pastor, Joe Novenson, puts it this way, that it's actually God's people raising a clenched fist, disputing His love, saying, how have you loved us? Show us. We demand an answer. Do you feel the cynicism? Yeah, right, you love us. Have you looked around, God? What about all that blessing? What of the presence you promised to return? How have you loved us? Now, I want to be careful. I don't know what I want to say that we should not question God, that He doesn't know how to deal with our questions, our genuine ones. But as this text is going to show us, we ought to be prepared that the answer might not come in the way that we expect it. 
Because if you look here, look how God responds. He says this to their cynical and doubting hearts. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Uh, that is not exactly the answer that they were looking for. How have you loved us? Edom's going to go to the jackals. Do what? But what's going on here? And how does it evidence God's great love for His people? You see, God responds to Israel's request by going back to the beginning of their story. He is reminding them of His gracious dealings with Israel in the past. James Boyce puts it this way, this striking comparison between Jacob and Esau Judah and Edom is to remind the self-righteous, critical citizens of Jerusalem of the unmerited and therefore electing love of God. They have had the audacity to demand that God show how He has loved them, utterly disregarding their unique status as His elect people. You see, Jacob and Esau were both Isaac's sons. And the two nations of Judah and Edom had developed from them respectively. It was Jacob's line that God would use to bless the earth. However, Edom, as a nation, would be gone from the map at about 400 B.C., never to return. Now, while I don't have time to go into all that much detail, we have to understand here this language of love and hate is more about, as Hugenberger puts it, love is used to express choice and hatred rejection rather than personal animosity, which he notes, by the way, was explicitly prohibited against the Edomites if you were to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 23, 7 and read about that. They wanted signs of His love and God takes them back to the source of it. His free, unmerited, sovereign choice of them. God simply wasn't going to play the show me the money game that Judah wanted. Rather, He goes back and tells them He loves them. And lest you think that God chose them because they were some sort of choice people, let me remind you of what Deuteronomy chapter 7 tells us. He says, It was not because you, Israel, were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed, and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the house hand of Pharaoh and king of Egypt. You see, it wasn't because they were in some way worthy. Rather, it was because God was and is altogether glorious in His own being and actions. They had forgotten the story of God's sheer delight in them. And so He reminds them of it. Now look, how does this have any bearing on God recovering those who question His love for them? Well, isn't it fairly common that you too would ask this sort of thing? Oh yeah, Lord, well, how have you loved us? When I consider my circumstances, I mean, come on, show me. Throw me a bone here. Look, do you know that our story is the same, is in the same line that Judah's was? Do you know that God will always point you to His great love for you as evidence of His delight in you? Now sure, sometimes He condescends and gives us immediate markers of that love. 
And this too is by His grace. However, I can speak from my own life, my own story, and tell you this. The job will be lost. The beloved family member will die. Or you before them. The divorce has come. And so where and how can God speak into that? He takes us right back to the gracious, loving covenant that He has and has always had with His people. He he binds it up into Himself. Something that can't be changed. Something that cannot be changed by our circumstances. This is good news, dear people of God. Hallelujah. Listen. He wants to take you back to the beginning of the story where you had nothing to do with Him loving you in the first place and to pound it into your heart that it was there that He loved you. This is your story. This is Malachi's contemporary story. And it will shatter your cynicism if you let it. How? I just want to say this. If you were like me and are a 10 on the cynical scale, can I ask you to do something? Can I ask you to apply cynicism to your own cynicism? The same blade that you apply to the statement that God loves you, that same blade, will you take it and apply it to the blade itself? Here's what I'm trying... I want you to grow cynical of your cynicism. I want you to begin to doubt the doubt that God doesn't love you. And you watch what happens the scales begin to fall off. Because your heart will soon be warmed by the everlasting love that God has always loved you with. No matter what. No matter how much of a nincompoop you are. No matter how much you have screwed up morally. God presses on in His dear love for you and for me. God also shows us lastly that He reminds them of their role in this great story. If you'll take a look with me at verse 5, he says this in this very short verse. He says, Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. It's echoed in verse 11 twice where he says this, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered in my name. I skip ahead, for my name will be great among the nations. What is God saying? to Malachi here. Well, not only does God want to remind them of their story, He wants to point them forward to what this grace will do through them in the future. God is saying, in other words, cheer up. I am not through with you yet. It's like the quarterback who's thrown the interception. He's now on the sidelines and the coach sends him back out there again. But, not because he thinks his quarterback is awesome but because the coach is entirely gracious. Think about it like this. We have mentioned that God has promised to restore Israel after their ruin. Something that Edom would never get. And Malachi's audience began to catch glimpses of this. However, the fulfillment of the story still lay in waiting. You see, the whole point of God choosing Jacob in the first place was to use Jacob to be a blessing to the whole world, including Edom. You see, one day, out of Jacob's faithfulness, the surrounding nations 
would see God's goodness to them and they too would know of the saving mercies of God's grace. Jacob was to be and still is to be a conduit of God's grace, not merely a container. But who has this privileged status now? Is it national Israel? Is that who it is? Listen to Paul's words in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. I could have stolen Darwin's words from chapter 2 of Romans. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. In other words, it is not national Israel, but the pan-national, all-encompassing, multinational church that gets to be this blessing to the world. Think about it like this. As a kid, one of my favorite movies was the Oscar-worthy, I don't know how it didn't pick up a couple of awards, The NeverEnding Story. Do you remember this? If you've never seen it, let me recap ever so briefly. It's the story of a boy who finds a book. And it's also the story of some big white furry dog that flies. We won't go there. But as he notices, as he's reading this book, as what happens in the book, the rain begins to fall in the story. And in his own world, he begins to hear the rain pellets up against the glass. The thunder and lightning crash in the story. And so it does in his world too. And soon you begin to hear a voice being called out in the story and then it echoes in his own world. What is going on? Do you see it? His story was a part of that larger story. That larger story they was reading in the book was actually his story. And y'all, what do you think this is? This is the story. And whose is it? It's yours. It's mine. It's the one that we get to participate in. It is the one that God has not finished with yet. It is the one that He has promised to use you for. You see, we still get to play a role in blessing the nations. Go back out there and take the ball, so to speak, because I love you. We get to play a role in blessing the nations, making God's glory known from the rising of the sun to its setting across the whole face of the earth. Beginning where? Right here on South Hewlin. To where? The ends of the earth. And God is saying, I want you to know that I have not finished with you yet. This means that we as a church need to see that our being a church is always for the purpose of the world. In theological terms, it means this. We can never separate our ecclesiology from our missiology. They go together. One writer has put it this way. The church doesn't exist without mission. That's worth considering. One of my favorite authors is Dorothy Sayers. Sayers was one of the first women to get accepted to Oxford, and she wrote a series of mystery novels around the detective, Lord Peter Whimsey. Now, I love what Tim Keller points out about these stories. The main character in her stories, Lord Peter Whimsey, is an aristocratic sleuth and a single man. And at one point in the novels, through though a, a, a character, a new character, Harriet Vane, appears, and she is described in the story as one of the first women who graduated from Oxford. She's a writer of mystery novels. Who was she? 
Many believe that Sayers looked into the world that she had created, fell in love with her lonely hero, and wrote herself into the story. How much more do we see this with God? It is what is at the heart of Christianity. You see, God doesn't just tell us of His love, though He certainly does. He doesn't just remind us of our story, though He most assuredly does. And He doesn't merely say, guess what, I'm not done with you, though He certainly does. But here is what He does. He comes in, breaking the time and space continuum somehow in the incarnation and dies for us. This is an incredible love. He enters the story as our hero and He dies for the supporting cast that keeps doubting His everlasting love. Dear Christian, this is your story. I have loved you. Dear non-Christian, it can be yours freely. Come to it. Believe it. Own it. And dear Bride of Christ, this is our story. We are loved so that others might know this same love. Will you believe it today? Will you? Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, thank You for Your grace to us. Thank You that You love people who are constantly doubting, who are constantly cynical about the love with which You say You have for us. Oh Lord, would You once again come and break us with Your mercy. Come and show us once again the great heart that You have for Your people. Tell us the story again if need be, O Lord. May we rehash it every week. May we rehash how You have loved sinners and You delight in showing them compassion for Your own grace and for Your own glory. Would You do this so that King Jesus would be made much of both here in Fort Worth and beyond. And it's in Your name that we pray. Amen.